think of this session as a class rather than a sermon. I want to think with you on certain basic questions that are very important for the happiness and the fruitfulness of each one of us. Here's a book that we all adore and reverence. The book of the Old and the New Testaments. What does testament mean? That's question number one we're going to think about in this hour. What is the meaning of the Old Testament? What's the meaning of the New Testament? The second question I have is this. Does the salvation of a lost world and the carrying of the message of the cross depend chiefly upon humans or chiefly upon God? And the next question is like unto it. Does my personal salvation depend primarily upon me or upon him? Now these are certain of the questions we're going to look at in this hour and we'll try and think our way through them. The word testament, of course, is more accurately translated covenant. Both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the term primarily used means a covenant, a treaty relationship between God and man, between man and man, or between man and woman. Marriage is a testament. Marriage is a covenant. The term occurs 300 times in the Old Testament and nearly 40 times in the New. So we're looking at a subject that's very prominent in Scripture, but most Christians know nothing about it. Nothing about it. So I would remind you that the Old Testament and the New Testament really means the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Why then use testament? Because a last will and testament was a form of covenant. The Bible covenant was unilateral in origin. That is, it was a one-sided handing down. It was not an agreement between equals, primarily. There is a special word in the Greek language for an agreement between equals. That's not the word that's used when the Bible speaks of the covenant. The biblical covenants were primarily like a last will and testament. The person who's making the will and testament does not necessarily have to counsel with those to whom he's going to make bequests. They come purely from him or from her. It is sealed by a death and you cannot change the terms of that covenant after the death. That's why as you and I look at the Christian world today, if they want to bring in anything after the cross of Christ as something new that Christians must believe, we say to them in the words of Scripture, that even though it be a man's covenant, if it be sealed, no man adds thereto. That is why Sunday observance is not biblical. It's three days too late. Anything that has to be in the new covenant had to be in by the time it was sealed at the cross. Christians are forbidden to believe anything that was not taught prior to the cross and sealed at the cross. The book of Galatians makes that very clear in other passages of scripture too. Hebrews as well, that once a covenant is sealed, no man can add thereto. So one reason the New Testament uses the term testament in a couple of cases of translation is because it was a special form of covenant dependent on a death whereby blessings and an inheritance was the result of the death. And that's what we have through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, you and I are the heirs. Calvary was the last will and testament of Christ in which he said, whosoever will may have everlasting life. 
And whosoever will can have forgiveness of sins. And whosoever will can have the indwelling spirit. And whosoever will can have my presence with them always. And it was sealed by a death. The sign of the covenant changes from era to era. But they compound one another rather than detract. The first sign of the covenant was the Sabbath. At the end of creation, when God made a covenant with Adam and Eve regarding the tree of life and obedience thereto, on the condition of their obedience they were to live forever, the sign of that original covenant was the Sabbath day, woven into the universe by the way God created the world. You can't snatch it from that. If it had only been on a document, you could get rid of it. But God wove the Sabbath into the very fabric of the universe, and that was the first sign of the great covenant of God. When that world was dying and a new world was dawning, God chose to add another sign, the covenant sign of the rainbow. Now, what is a rainbow? You say to me, well, there's that simple. It's rain with the sun shining through it. And you see, rain often in the Bible, storm, thunder, is a sign of the wrath of God, the righteousness of God that demands judgment, such as the flood was. But the sun shining through it was to say that all God's actions are always irradiated with the sunshine of his love and his mercy, that even his judgments. And so he could call Noah, who was not perfect as we understand perfection in an absolute sense. The biblical word perfect in the Old Testament, the margin often puts sincere. What it means is loyal. The idea of perfection in the Bible is never sinlessness. It means loyalty. And so God could choose a rainbow, the sun shining through the rain, that though all the world had departed from his precepts, and although even those that claimed to worship him were far from absolutely perfect, he could throw open a place of refuge and say, if you're willing, you can come, and I'll give you safety, and I'll give you life, and I'll make you the heirs of a new world. So the sun shining through the rain is the second symbol of the covenant to tell us this very important truth. Listen carefully to what I now say. It can change your life. There is no evil thing in life that can overtake us which cannot yield good if rightly taken in faith. That's the meaning of the covenant. The sun shines through the rain. Similarly, there's no good thing in life which can't yield evil if not taken hold of rightly in faith. Money can be a blessing or a curse. Intelligence can be a blessing or a curse. That's why the Bible says not many mighty, not many noble, not many rich, you see. So I repeat, the rainbow with the sun coming through the rain, symbolizing the mercy of God at the time of the flood devastation and judgment, was a reminder to us that however evil the situation, if we believe in the love of God, Believe in the sunshine that shines through the rain and gives beauty. Is there anything so beautiful in the heavens as a rainbow? If we believe in that, however evil the thing that happens, however terrible the problem, it will yield good to those that take it by faith in the love of God. There is a third symbol 
of the covenant that's found in scripture and that was the symbol of circumcision because it was the sign of the seed of Abraham and when that seed came that symbol was submerged into the symbol of baptism which was to endure for the rest of time that circumcision was a symbol of the seed the Messiah and when he came it submerged into baptism which was the sign that the Messiah had come and died in order to open heaven Remember the New Testament picture of baptism as Christ going down into the water and then the heavens being opened and the Spirit coming down. A prelude of Calvary and Pentecost. Christ went down into the waters of death at Calvary and as he went down, the way was open for the Pentecostal bestowal of the Spirit, just as the Spirit came upon him in Jordan. So there you have the signs of the covenant. In the Old Testament, the word covenant is usually in the singular because though we hear of a covenant with Israel, which is called the Old Covenant, 150 times that covenant is mentioned, though we hear of a covenant with David, and a covenant with Abraham, and a covenant with, with Adam and with Noah, in God's sight there's only one covenant. And what is the meaning of that? What bearing does that have on my question as to whether the salvation of a lost world depends more on God than the church, whether my salvation depends more on his faithfulness than mine? You see, a covenant was always based on law. You must be careful to distinguish between that which is legal and that which is legalistic. They are poles apart. Your marriage is legal, but I trust it's not legalistic. A thing is legal when it is in harmony with what is right and true and good. That's what's legal, in harmony with law. The universe is based on law. Every action you and I perform either is in harmony with law or violates it. I am what I am because I've been doing what I've been doing. We're a product of whether we've obeyed law or disobeyed law. Everything about us. We have to enlarge that statement by saying, saying we benefit and suffer by whether our ancestors have obeyed and disobeyed law. But it's a universe of law. And what the covenant tells us is God's not arbitrary. God's not moody. You think of the people you know. Many of the people you like best are the people who are consistent, who are not moody. You and I know what it is to deal with a child that has tantrums. Now most of us, at some stage of our life, have been like that child. But God is not someone who has tantrums. God is reliable, absolutely reliable, absolutely consistent, always in harmony with the true and the good, but not just the pure legalistic approach to law, but a good that's irradiated by the sunshine of his love. Not a cold, hard, abstract law, but a law that's fostered and beautified by the greatest law of all in the universe, that of sharing and caring, unselfish love. That's the biggest law of all. The only people who are going to live forever are those who are in harmony with that law. You know, I'm a Sabbatarian, but I'm not going to come to someone else say, if you're not a Sabbatarian, you're lost. That would be ridiculous. The first question God asks is, do they obey my first great law of unselfish, sharing love? And if they do, they're mine. They're mine. And so the first thought of the covenant is that salvation for a world and for people has much more to do with God who's always stable, always consistent, always the same, who changes not. He's not moody. He doesn't sulk. He doesn't have a tantrum. You can rely on God. Dear friends, you can't rely on yourself. 
and you can't rely on other people. Curse is the man that trusteth in man, whose heart departed from the living God. But blessed is the one whose hope the Lord is. You can't depend on yourself. We're changeable people. Our moods and emotions go up and down with the weather, with our diet, with whether you catch the flu, whatever. Even the, te- the IRS can affect us in this way. <laughs> you certainly can't depend on yourself. And the other people with whom we associate, they're like us. They're animated mud. Sometimes they stumble along and don't fall. Other times they fall. They're just like us. But God we can rely on. So that's one of the meanings of the covenant. There are seven covenants in Scripture. There's the covenant made with Adam, whereby as he recognised that God gave him all things, and if he responded to that appropriately as a good steward, he'd live forever. Then there was the covenant with Noah. God says, I make a covenant with you, come into the ark, covenant of salvation. Then there was the covenant with Abraham, that he'd be an heir of the world to come, according to Romans 4.17. Canaan was just a symbol of it and that he'd be the progenitor of the Messiah. And then came the most famous covenant of all in the Old Testament, and that's the covenant with Israel, where God called them out of Egypt and said, if you'll obey my voice, I'll be your father, and you'll be my people. That's the covenant promise all through the Bible. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All the way through the Bible you have that, again and again and again, right through into Revelation. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. That's the one promise that comprehends everything else. Dear friends, if you have trouble forgetting all the other promises, remember that one. For God to be God, God's enough. For God to be God, that's enough. God is enough. He knows everything that's happening and for God to know and to do something, the same thing. Not for me, not for you, but for God to know and to do something is the same thing. He's not in a hurry I'm in. He's not in a hurry you're in. He does it at the best time. The best time. So we have the covenant with Israel. We have the covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David that of his seed there would come a king and a kingdom that would last forever. And the New Testament takes that for granted as finding its fulfilment in Jesus, the son of David, the king of that covenant. It's discussed in great detail in Psalm 89, but also 2 Samuel 7. And then we have the promise of the new covenant that Roy read to us from Jeremiah 31. This is made as they're about to go into the captivity for their sins. It's like another flood judgment. People have apostatized again. The Bible is a record of, of new starts and apostasies, judgments and new starts. All the way through. New start, apostasy, Adam. Marked by death, theirs and Abel's. Apostasy, Tower of Babel, judgment. Apostasy, flood, you know, the other order. The flood was first. Then God calls Israel, within 40 days they're making an idol. Should we trust human nature? Within 40 days, God had given them all these signs and wonders. We often think, if I'd seen what Israel had seen, I'd never have doubted. Dear friends, don't believe it. If they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one rises from the dead. See? Conviction comes as we listen to the Spirit of God. It doesn't come from signs and wonders. An evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. It's a very bad sign in American religion that the vast majority in America are seeking a religion authenticated with materialistic signs. That's a very bad bad thing. An evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. As Israel went into captivity in Babylon, it was a repeat of the fall in Eden. It was a repeat of what happened at the flood. It was a repeat of what happened at Babel. It was a repeat of what happened in Israel at Sinai. I apostatized on the borders of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. 
But at that time, God spoke in grace. He's always doing that. At the time when things are blackest, God gives his most glorious promises. As if to say and remind us, yes, it's true, you're worse than you ever thought, but balance that up with the awareness that I'm better than you ever hoped. So every time man goes down, God gives something special. As soon as Adam sins in the garden, God says, all right, Adam, you've sold yourself to that old serpent, but I'll put enmity between you and the serpent. You can't do it. You love his ways now, but I'll put enmity. Dear friends, that's what happens when you're conversion, in conversion. God puts enmity in your heart against evil. If you haven't got an enmity against evil, you're not converted. I will put enmity. We can't put it there. So straight after the fall in Eden, he promised he'd make the enmity between the woman and her seed, the church, and ultimately Christ and the devil's church, you see. And the Messiah would come. And after the time of the uh, flood, uh, God gave the promise that from the Semites would come the Saviour. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And after the Tower of Babel, God called out Abraham to found the, the new people. And after the terrible experience of Egypt, God brought out his people in the Exodus movement. So whenever things are terrible, God does something new and wonderful. And at the time when Israel is about to go into Babylonian captivity, we have the great promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to make a new covenant. See, Ezekiel was talking about a new David and a new temple. Isaiah was talking about a new Exodus. Jeremiah spoke about a new covenant. It had its first fulfillment after return from Babylon. It was ratified finally at the cross forever. And what was this covenant like, the new covenant? He said it will be better because it's not going to depend on the promises of the people. It will depend on mine. At Sinai, God was teaching his people some lessons. There they said, all the Lord has said, we'll do and be obedient. That was a good answer, but they didn't know themselves. Within a few weeks, they'd broken their promise. All the Lord has said, we'll do and be obedient, said they. They didn't do it. So the New Testament constantly says they broke their covenant. They were bad promises. They didn't know themselves. They didn't know what they were doing. You know, you see the same thing today in most marriages. That's why most marriages end up divorced today in America. They make promises without knowing what they're doing. And that's what Israel did. So the new covenant, dear friends, was to depend on better promises, the promises of God. I will forgive their sins and their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. I will write my law on their hearts. They're better promises. They're better promises. Therefore, they're promises of justification and sanctification. I'll forgive their sins. That's justification. I'll write my law on their hearts. That's sanctification. It cannot be said too often. The only person who's really free is the one that wants to do what they ought to do. Now, that's what happens when God writes it in the heart. See? True Christian love isn't saying, well, I detest the neighbour next door, but I guess I've got to try and love him. That's no good. That's no good. God changes the heart. He breaks our heart. By forgiving our sins, we find him so much better than we deserve. He just changes the way we look at life, changes the way we look at duty. We suddenly wake up, we're not our own. He gave us our life, he gave us our talents, he sustained us, he's kept us. We all have many contemporaries who are now buried. God has kept us through many things. So we own nothing, we can't create anything. Man makes gods by the thousands, but he can't even make a flea. We can't create anything, we can't sustain anything. All we are at the best is stewards, and that's what the covenant involves. God, the covenant is God giving and giving and giving in such a way as to break the heart so that we say, Lord, we want to be good stewards of yours. 
And that's the result of the covenant. That's the result of the salvation. We're saved not by obedience, because it's always defective, but we are saved to obedience. And the obedience of Scripture is the obedience not of immaculate nature, not of an absoluteness that's only possible for the angels. The obedience of Scripture is the obedience of loyalty, as we said earlier. The obedience of loyalty, whereby it is our chief desire to please our God and to serve him. God accepts that, even though we stumble constantly in our walk as we try to glorify our God. That's the only perfection the Bible knows of. So the new covenant, as promised in Jeremiah, is to be based on better promises because God would be the prime mover, which answers our last question. Does my salvation depend more on him or on me? Dear friends, I'm glad it depends on him. I'm so glad it depends on him. We are not only weak, we are stupid. You know. And we're not only weak and stupid, we're very proud. <laughs> when I make a mistake, I confess that I am, my pride is more hurt than anything else. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm sorry I let you down, I think, boy, I thought I wouldn't be that mad. I didn't think I'd be that stupid. You know. We are weak. We are sinful. We are proud. So if salvation depends on us, even after conversion, we'd never make it, dear friends. We'd never make it. Listen to this. Our hold on him is feeble at the best. But his hold on us is that of an elder brother. He will never, never, never let us go if we want him. He'll not push his presence upon us if we don't want him. We're free at any time. You know, the covenant is a warning against the false teaching of once saved, always saved, and yet it clearly teaches assurance. Israel could always reject the covenant. And you don't have to have Christ. You can throw eternal life away if you wish. But if you want him, he will never, never, never let you go. While you truly love Jesus Christ and desire to be loyal to him, it doesn't matter how many mistakes you make, you are never cast off. It was Jesus that said, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, and he that cometh I'll in no wise cast out. Now that to me is wonderful news. I don't find anything in myself of which to be proud. I find many things which, which humble me, and there'd be a million more that would humble me if the Lord let me see them. They're there, and other people see them, but God knows how much we can each take. And in his mercy, he takes the blinkers away very gradually. All life long is a process of learning about him, about life and ourselves. And it's the third one that's hard to take. It's the third one that's hard to take. Because again, I repeat the platitude, given the right circumstances, any one of us is capable of any sin. And if you doubt that, go without sleep for a week and see how you start behaving. Given the right circumstances, any of us is capable of any sin. Well, what is the seventh covenant? We've looked at six. We've looked at the Adamic and the one made with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel of the Exodus movement, with the promise uh, made to David. That was the fifth one. Then the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. In Hebrews 13, if you might look, like to look at this text, it mentions the, the seventh covenant, which undergirds all the rest. And all the others really reflect this one. In Hebrews chapter 13, it talks in verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the everlasting covenant. 
You see, there was an everlasting covenant that overshadows all these covenants. A covenant made from eternity to eternity. Made in times eternal. Before the foundations of the earth were laid. That's why the Bible talks of Christ as the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. See? That's why Paul talks about the mystery kept in silence from times eternal. The everlasting covenant was God's pledge that he would save his rebel sons and daughters if they'd let him. God knew from eternity that when this little planet was made, this one would rebel. It would be the one lost sheep in the universe. But he pledged himself before it happened that he would still save those rebels if they'd let him. That's the everlasting covenant. So by the everlasting covenant, we mean the same as the everlasting gospel. The covenant's just another way of talking about the gospel. It shows that the the main power and the reliability is on the divine side. The promises are chiefly his. It should not be thought, however, that the Bible encourages the idea of cheap grace. Whichever covenant you look at, and some in particular, stress that a human response is anticipated. If you are truly loved, it is the natural response to love back. That's the natural response. Many people found themselves halfway to marriage when they suddenly found someone loved them. That changes everything. A love that can accept you and not criticise you, that changes everything. Moses find life difficult in the family because family members are quick to point out the problems, quick to point out the faults, you see. And if you meet someone else that doesn't do that, my, what a aura we see surrounding such a person. Many a person is married on the basis, not that they primarily loved that other person, but they found they were loved by that person. So whenever a person is loved, the natural response is love. And the covenants of scripture are based on that idea. But each time you find an elaboration of the covenant in detail, there are stipulations. For example, when you have Exodus 19 and 20 and chapter 19 of Exodus, God says that his covenant that he made with Abraham was the reason he was delivering Israel, had delivered Israel from Egypt. And even when he begins in chapter 20 about the commandments, he says, I brought you out of the house of bondage. See, there's the the great act of mercy and grace, the divine prevenient goodness that saved us when we could not save ourselves. And anyone that understands that will read the commandments differently to the person who doesn't understand it. The person that doesn't take into account the introduction to the covenant document, that I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out, that delivered you from the house of bondage, the person that doesn't understand that will read the commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. But the person that understands that God is saying, I've delivered you from bondage, I'm your father, I'm your friend, I love you. That person will read the commandments differently. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. The commandments become promises to the person that realises that he or she has been loved. Then they're promises, you see. Promises. God, knowing our weak human nature, at times spelled out the inevitable results if people should be so foolish as to change the blessing of his grace into cheap grace. And by cheap grace we mean, well, if God's that good, I can do what I like any time I like. I don't have to be careful. Dear friends, the real truth about life is we have to be careful in practically everything we do. You can't even cross a road without being careful. Our decisions do matter. 
You're either in harmony with the laws of the universe or you'll be ground up, either earlier or later. Our decisions do matter. So God, in mercy to us, says, look, if you turn your back on the covenant, this is what's going to happen. So every time you have a covenant enlarged, there are warnings of love to save us from our folly. So in the Ten Commandments, he talks about visiting the sins of the fathers under the third and fourth generations. But showing mercy to thousands of generations of them that love him. Them that love him. And keep my commandments. You know that's where Jesus got his words from? If you love me, keep my commandments. That's a quotation from the second commandment where God spoke about his mercy to thousands of generations of them that loved him and kept his commandments. You know, there's not a paragraph in the teachings of Christ that doesn't have its roots in the Old Testament. If you want to have some interesting worship session sometime, take any paragraph of Christ's teaching and say, now, what is he alluding to in the Old Testament? He didn't come to give something new in the sense of novel. He put a spirit into truth he'd given earlier. Real truth's eternal. It doesn't just come around tomorrow. See? You can nearly always say about religion, if it's new, it's rarely true. And if it's true, it's rarely new. See? The real truths are the everlasting things. Right? So we are saying that wherever the, the covenants are enlarged in detail, God in mercy warns us of the inevitable reaction to us in life. We do the wrong thing. We are so slow to learn that all action is a sowing and reaping is inevitable. God in his mercy of the cross took away the eternal reaping of damnation. But even a Christian suffers the temporal reaping according to their sowing. Even a Christian. David was the man after God's own heart. When he sinned, he lost child after child, as we notice. Agony and suffering. The last years of his reign were terribly uh, clouded because of his folly. And yet he was God's child and he'll be saved. So God warns us that sin only brings suffering. And we have prominent in the Old Testament what's known as the curses of the covenant. These are particularly spelled out in Deuteronomy 28, but they're also found throughout the prophets. And I want to tell you of some of them. Hunger and thirst, Deuteronomy 28, 48. Hunger and thirst. Desolation, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 6. Poverty, Deuteronomy 28, 31. Scorn by passers-by, Jeremiah 19, 8. Darkness, Isaiah 13, 10. Earthquake, same chapter but verse 13. Being cut off, that was another curse if they were to turn their backs on the covenant. Exodus 12, 15. Death by hanging on a tree would be one manifestation of a curse for those that turned their back on the covenant. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. A brass heavens overhead with no response. You know, mankind can only live because the heavens weep. Here we are now, receiving needed rain this weekend and another lot to come. What would happen if heaven didn't weep over the earth? We'd all die. So one of the curses would be a brass heavens with no refreshing dew or rain and no help. Deuteronomy 28 verse 31 said, God said, I won't help you if you're in trouble. If you turn your back on my covenant. By turning the back on the covenant, he never meant a mistake. He never meant a stupid action. He meant rebellion, deliberate and protective. You can't have peace unless you understand the difference because we're all guilty of the first. No truly converted Christian ever seeks the second. God never turns from us because of our follies and our mistakes. But we turn from him in deliberate, protracted rebellion. That's another thing. So the curses were for the rebellion. 
Now, why do I list these curses? Because when you look at the cross of Christ, you see that the man who sealed the covenant by his blood bore all those curses so that we wouldn't have to. Let me remind you of them again. The curses included hunger and thirst. You know, he went this long period from the Last Supper till his death the next day without food through terrible strain and agony. On the cross he's so thirsty, I thirst. The curses of hunger and thirst were his. Desolation, my God, my God, why? He's desolate. Poverty is a man so poor, you could say foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. Son of man hasn't got a place to lay his head. He doesn't own any, any great home, a cottage by the sea. He didn't even have a boat, he had to borrow it. He didn't own the tomb he was placed in. He had to borrow the donkey he rode into the city on and the upper room where he held the Last Supper. He was poor, that by his poverty we might be rich. The scorn of passers-by, that was another one of the curses. All they that see me, see me laugh me to scorn, says Psalm 22. They jeered at him, says the Gospel record. Darkness, darkness over the earth for three hours. Earthquake, the earth shook as he died. The very earth itself was perturbed by what happened to its creator and author of life. Just as the human heart races under terrible emotion, the earth acted that out in earthquake as its creator died. He was cut off, another of the curses. He hung on a tree. Curses everyone that hangs on a tree. There were brass heavens that didn't respond. My God, God said nothing until the third day. Dear friends, never be discouraged if God tarries, even though your prayers are frantic. I have prayed frantically sometimes. Mummy over my children. You can pray frantically. I told you before, when my firstborn had colic for 12 months and made the nights hideous until 12 o'clock, with terrible complaints. My prayers were frantic. And I'm sure you've had frantic prayers. But the thing to remember is, God answers in his time. God didn't even answer his own son with an immediate yes. He waited till the third day. God's timing's better than ours. Though it never looks like that originally. That's the way of it. And so Christ endured the curses. In the Messiah we find one that fulfilled all the requirements all the stipulations of the covenant, he kept those commandments perfectly, absolutely, because he had a sinless nature. Even with the believer, because we have a sinful nature still, whatever we do falls short of perfect. I've never done anything just right in my life. I've not preached a sermon over which I don't need to repent. Not ever. We don't do anything just right because our sinful nature is tainted and perverted and polluted, so nothing comes out just as Adam could have done it. Nothing comes out just as Christ could have done it. But when Christ came, he was that holy thing, holy, harmless, undefiled. He was like the first Adam in purity. Though he lacked the vitality of the first Adam because of the laws of heredity and absence from the tree of life. So he kept the stipulations of the covenant perfectly. He did it for us. So in Jesus we see someone who kept the commandments perfectly for us and endured the curses for us. He both fulfilled the law and bore the penalty of breaking the law. That's the significance of Calvary. Now let me close with just a few illustrations of how the covenant works. I'll remind you of some that you know well. Remember Mephibosheth? Lame by a fall, couldn't walk straight. And David calls him and said, I had a covenant with Jonathan. Therefore you're going to be a prince again. 
and you're going to eat at my table. You'll have a royal robe. No one will know you're lame. The white robe will cover you. You'll have the long robe of, uh, of, of importance, significance. And the man who was lame by a fall is a king again, cared for at the royal palace. That's a picture. Because of the covenant, it says in Second Samuel 9. Because of the covenant. You remember when David found that wandering Amalekite who'd been a servant of an Egyptian? That Amalekite was to bring back the lost families by leading David and his men down to where the enemy was. But first of all, he said to David, swear to me that you'll not kill me. And so David made a covenant with him. And then the Amalekite became his servant and took him down and they got all their families back. A covenant has to do with life and death. A covenant is God promising to spare you and to keep you. And then in response you serve. Let's look at one more. Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel 17? Uh, 18, I think it is. <coughs> yes, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 18 very briefly. When he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, gave it to David and his armour and even his sword and his bow and his girdle. Now please note that verse 3. Jonathan, the king's son, made a covenant with David who didn't really belong to the palace. He's a nobody. But the king's son makes a covenant with a nobody. What sort of a covenant? Whereby he'll love him as his own soul. How much does Christ love you? How much does God love you? Listen, none of us can believe it, but it is so. God loves you as he loves his own son. That's how much God loves you. God loves you as he loves his own son. And that's one reason life is hard. You say, what do you mean? It ought to be easy if God loves me that much. No, dear friends, no lover can contend with imperfection in what is loved. And the reason life is so tough, the reason life is so hard, is because this life's an education where God, whereby God is getting rid of the blemishes from us. He's perfecting us. He's preparing us for eternity. And even the process is not complete. You'll complete it the resurrection morning. But God loves us so much he can't stand our blemishes. That's why he disciplines us. That's why life is tough. David loved him as his own soul and he stripped himself of the robe and gave it to David, our Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly Jonathan, the prince, has loved us as himself and he stripped himself. What he did on Calvary, dear friends, whereby he gave his robe to his crucifiers. He could have lifted an eyebrow and blotted them all out. But he gave his robe to his crucifiers. Our Jonathan, the great prince, who loves us as himself, has stripped himself of the robe and given it to us nobodies. That is the blessing and the evidence of the covenant. That's what the book of the Old and the New Covenants is trying to tell us.